Turn your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 2, Jeremiah chapter 2, what they did not say, Jeremiah chapter 2. Little boy went to a birthday party. When he came home, he asked, his mother asked him, did you thank Ms. Johnson for the birthday party? We're all like that, aren't we? We want our children to be polite and respectful, to show gratitude in such a way that we really look good because of their graceful manners. So she asked, did you thank Ms. Johnson for the birthday party? No, no, he answered. I was standing in line, ready to leave when the boy in front of me thanked her, and she said, don't mention it. So <laughs> I didn't. It's hard to leave an act of kindness unthanked. Recently, someone gave me a gift, and as she gave me the gift, she said, now, pastor, do not write me a thank you note. I don't want one. I'm trying not to write one because when I tell people don't write one, I really do mean it. It's not necessary, but I, and I know that she meant it, but because I haven't written a thank you note, when I really am grateful, well, something seems incomplete about the cycle of the gift and the gratitude. In Jeremiah chapter 2, we come to an undated collection of poetic utterances from the prophet. It's something of a sampler of topics that Jeremiah takes up at various places and passages in the prophetic book itself. It's the people of Judah. It's the people of Jerusalem. They're the real audience for this prophetic poetry. Well, let's take a look. Jeremiah chapter 2, look at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go proclaim in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, I remember concerning you the devotion of your youth, the love of your betrothals, your following after me in the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first of his harvest. All who ate of it became guilty. Evil came upon them, declares the Lord. Now, there are two distinct metaphors used here that are mixed together, as the prophetic works often do. The first one, the relationship between Judah and Yahweh is depicted as a marriage. Yahweh here, God here, has a very gracious memory as he forgets about all the grumbling of ancient Israel in the wilderness, the difficulties of that period, and he depicts that period with a, a gracious memory like a honeymoon, the honeymoon of a marriage, a celebrated time. Look at verse 2. We hear covenant words. They're, they're words of those in love, words like devotion. The word love, verse 2. The word follow after, those words, verse 2. In those days, when manna rained down from heaven, Israel was totally dependent upon her God, her Lord, and glad to be so. Like a young bride, Jeremiah says. In this image of marriage, the partners have sworn fidelity and loyalty to each other. And the one who has taken a marriage vow is not easily free, cannot be disregarded. It's a covenant relationship. My relationship with you, Judah, is like a marriage covenant 
with God being the groom and his people being the bride. Judah in this honeymoon period was like a bride trusting her husband. Leaving the security, however bad it was, of Egypt, at least you knew what to expect, and going into an unknown, harsh wilderness. In verse 3, notice the metaphor changes. It's similar language. Like a wife is holy or set apart for her husband, just so is the first fruit. The image is the harvest offering when the first crops, the first fruit, the most tender and the best of the field is brought to God as an offering. It's an acknowledgement that all the land belongs to God. It's always about the land, isn't it, for Israel? God had given them a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And by bringing him the first of their produce, the first fruits, they were acknowledging that God was the owner of all the land and that God had been the giver of the gift. The land belongs to the Lord, and the Lord has given it to his people. And in return, the people were to bring the best and the first, their offering to him. Yahweh is entitled to the early produce. That's the deal. He's entitled to Israel because Israel belongs to Yahweh. They are his people. Whether it's the image of the newlyweds or the first fruit, the first of the harvest, it is the image of holy or set apart, dedicated to God, like a young wife to her husband, like the offering of the harvest to the Lord. What Yahweh wants them to see is this. The people of God exists for no other reason than to be available to God. Listen to that this morning. The people of God exist for no other reason than to be available to God. You think about that for a moment. The people of God then and the people of God now, we exist for no other reason than to make ourselves available for the purposes, the will, and the way of God. As a wife to her husband, as a first fruit to the priestly family, Israel belongs exclusively to the Lord. They exist for no other purpose. Now we have these positive metaphors about the honeymoon, the husband, the wife, and the first fruit, the glorious harvest, because they set up a context for a harsh reversal there in verse 3. Look how it turns to verse 3. Whoever eats this produce is guilty and receives evil. To eat, in this case, would bring not the Lord his offering, but rather for someone other than the priestly family to consume that harvest gift, that first fruit. Whoever eats this produce is guilty and will receive evil. To eat what belongs to the Lord to pervert his proper dedication, to distort the relationship between God and his people, the first fruit set aside for the priest and his family and any other person who partook, Leviticus 22, was guilty of trespass. And likewise, the Lord assured the patriarchs all the way back in Genesis that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In the present situation... Jeremiah chapter 2, this wayward people of Judah and Jerusalem, they're worshiping other gods. They are not devoted. 
There's a contrast here between a fickle people and a faithful God. A fickle people and a faithful God. They are not holy and set apart to God. They are profane. They are not whole, but they are broken. The present sorry situation is nothing like what it has been as God, as Yahweh remembers, nor is it anything like it could be if the people lived in obedience to Yahweh. Not only is the honeymoon over in this passage, but the whole relationship is deeply distorted. What might have been a happy marriage between God and his people and a joyous offering is now deeply perverted, seemingly almost beyond recall. Look there in verse 4. It begins a trial scene. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what injustice did your fathers find in me? that they went far from me and walked after emptiness and became empty. We have a prophetic lawsuit now when we get to verse 5. Maybe it's a divorce hearing between Yahweh and his bride, God and his people. And in these hearings, we see the disastrous incongruity between a faithful God and a fickle people. And God is like a hurt and a wounded lover because Israel has not been faithful. And so he declares in verse 5 in the courtroom, what did I do wrong? In the, this relationship, where was I unfaithful? What did your forefathers find wrong in me? Come and listen to the word of the Lord, he says at the beginning of verse 4. Come close, listen to me. What injustice did your fathers find in me? If there's nothing wrong with Yahweh in this relationship, then there's something fickle about his people. If Yahweh has been faithful, if the groom has been faithful, then the bride has been fickle and the relationship is broken. And now we're in divorce hearings by the time we get to verse 4 and 5 because Israel has not been faithful. What was meant to be intimate has now become distant. Look at verse 5. They have gone far away from me. They have gone far away from me. They have walked after emptiness, and they have become empty. Listen carefully to verse 5. They walked after emptiness, and they have become empty. You become like the God that you worship. They chased after emptiness, and they became empty. You and I will take on the character of the gods we choose to follow. By definition, whatever you worship and devote yourself to, you will become like this. They chased emptiness, and they became empty. Israel went after nothing, and now they are no thing. In the book of Jeremiah, there's a parallel passage it comes from Psalm 15, Psalm 115. Listen as I read it. They have mouths but cannot speak. They have eyes but cannot see. He's describing the idols. They have ears but they cannot hear. They have noses but they cannot smell. They have hands but they cannot feel. They have feet but they cannot walk. They cannot even make a sound with their throat. 
Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. The song of the Psalter 115 says, You become like you worship. And the idols, they have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses that can't smell. They have hands that can't feel. They have legs that can't walk. And you will become like them. The gods you have made and the gods that you follow that are not Yahweh, you will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them will be like them. The theme in Jeremiah, the theme in the Song of the Psalters repeated in the minor prophet Hosea. It says the people of God became to, came to Bel Peor and they voted this, devoted themselves to shame and they became as detestable as that which they loved. We become like the thing that we worship. Translated plainly, you better be careful whom or what you choose to worship, what you devote your time to, your resources to, your energy to, where you find yourself, whatever altar you're bowing down before, you will become very much like the thing that you worship. And Israel chased after emptiness and the idols, and she became empty. The loyalty one has toward any God is decisive for shaping of human life. We become like the God we serve. Now verse 6. And they did not say, where is the Lord? who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and pits, through the land of drought and deep darkness, though the land had no one crossed and where no man dwelt. And I brought you into the fruitful land to eat its fruit and its good things. But you came and defiled my land and my inheritance, and you made it an abomination. And the priest did not say, Where is the Lord? There's the title of our sermon what they did not say. They did not say. They no longer, ancient Israel, Judah, Jerusalem is no longer reciting the story of the Exodus. The words of the Lord are no longer on their lips. Not only did the people not say, the worship leaders, verse 8, look, the priest, the priest also did not say, where's the Lord? They weren't speaking of Yahweh anymore. Today, I don't want to talk to you about what you have said. I want to talk to you about what you have not said. And they did not say. Israel here is not indicted so much for what she's done, but what, what she did not say. The people of God are a community that speaks. Uh, we are, by definition, a community of utterance. When Israel ceased to utter rightly, the community itself was jeopardized. The people of Israel, the church today, we are to be a speaking, uttering, proclaiming community of the goodness of God. And they did not say. The first indictment is against the whole community. And the people of God did not say. It's an indictment against all past generations from Moses all the way down to Jeremiah. They have not proclaimed the goodness of God. They did not say, where is the Lord? They were silent. What is it they forgot to say? They forgot to say thank you to God. 
They forgot to say thank you to the Lord for his deliverance from Egypt and for his safe leadership into the wilderness. Look at verse 6. And they did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt? They didn't say anything about all the good things that God himself had done for them. Now, I want you to notice for our grammarians here, there is no indirect object. It does not say, and did not, they did not say to their children. It doesn't say that. That's probably implied, but there is no indirect object. It doesn't say, and they did not say to their pagan neighbors, meaning that they did not witness. There is no indirect object there at all. The whole point here is not so much to whom they did not speak, but the fact that they did not continually declare the goodness of the God who released them from Egypt. It is the speaking that keeps the speakers inside the story of God. It is the proclamation of the church that keeps the church within the will of God. Israel was to be a uttering, communicating, a proclaiming community, and she stopped saying all the things that God had done. The whole community was guilty, not just the priests, but verse 8, it gets worse. The worship leaders are likewise guilty, and the priests, they did not say. They stopped the utterance of the goodness of a very good, faithful God. Even the priest did not utter the name of the Lord. They did not make it available out loud, publicly proclaiming the goodness of God. It's an ongoing recital of thankfulness at the deliverance of God and his involvement in our lives. Of all the things that the Lord may be able to say about this people called First Baptist, I hope that it can never be said in our 130-plus year history that we were a silent people. We are to be a proclaiming, uttering community, and in proclamation and in utterance, we live within the will and the way of God here in Amarillo and to the whole world. We are to take the message, and we are to speak, and we are to say. May the Lord never say that we, too, are silent about his goodness. We need to be always a people of gratitude. Henry Nouwen says gratefulness cannot be manufactured. It's a grace gift that God bestows and not anything we can create in our own hearts. True gratitude bears little resemblance to the forced optimism underlying the admonition to count your blessings. And gratitude is not a denial of your pain or your suffering or the hardships that you're in. It doesn't take that to be grateful. It's not a stoic effort to concentrate on all the good things, to live above the bad things in life. It isn't the power of positive thinking. It's really not attained by presenting God with a list of things for which we're grateful for. Rather, it is, now and says, presenting our whole selves to God, which matches Jeremiah. He wanted the total faithfulness of his people like a wife to her husband. From our innermost being, we are to be a thankful people for all the things that God has done for us. May he never say of us, they did not say.
truth of the matter is, if you have food in the refrigerator, clothes on your back and a roof over your head and a place to sleep tonight, you're richer than 75% of the inhabitants of planet Earth. If you have any money in the bank at all, cash in your wallet and a dish on the dresser drawer with some change in it, then you're among the top 8% of the richest people on planet Earth. If you woke up this morning with more health than you did sickness, if you're more well than you are sick, you're more fortunate than the million on planet Earth who will not make it through this week. If you never experienced the danger of battle, and I know some of you have, the loneliness of imprisonment, the agony of torture, the pangs of starvation, you're ahead of 500 million people in this world. And if you had the freedom this morning to come and attend worship without having to look over your shoulder, coming without fear of harassment or arrest or torture or death, you are ahead of billions of people on this planet who must worship in secret because if they say publicly, they'll be persecuted. A wise man once said that the hardest arithmetic for any of us is to count our blessings. You see, we, we try to count our blessings on our fingertips and our complaints on our calculators. We spend so much time complaining to God that sometimes we forget that we too are to say the goodness of God. And they did not say the Bible can be summarized into two great stories. The great story of ancient Israel was that she was enslaved down in Egypt. For hundreds of years, she was the slave of Egypt. And the people cried out to God, and they cried out to God, and generation after generation cried out to God, Oh, God, won't you hear our cries? Oh, God, won't you deliver us? God, are you deaf? Are you not hearing? And they cried out, and they cried out, and God raised up a deliverer named Moses. You know the story, the baby in the basket in the river, and Pharaoh's daughter raised in the house of royalty himself, then identifying eventually with his people and God in the burning bush, commanding him to go and demand that Pharaoh let my people go and the plagues and the death of the firstborn and the, the, the dividing of the water so that God's people go safely across dry land, the collapsing of the water on the Egyptians. It was the one story of all the stories of the Old Testament. That's the one story you need to know. That is ancient Israel's story. And what Jeremiah says is, you stop telling the story, the story of Egypt. The story of God's deliverance, the story of the deliverer of Moses. That's the story of the Old Testament. There's one story in the New Testament, too, and really only one story. It's the story of a second Moses. It's the story of another people, and we are that people. And we are enslaved, too, but we are enslaved to sin and to death. And we cried out to God because we're afraid of sin and sin has enslaved us and we're in the, the devil's snare and we're afraid of death because death takes us down to Sheol and we cry out and we cry out and God sends a second Moses, a deliverer, another baby and he grows. He, he reigns from an unlikely throne, the cross. And his tomb is empty and we're delivered. The story of deliverance of the old text and the story of deliverance of the new text. And we are to say we are his people and God has set us free. May we always say 
May we always speak with our lips, both leaders and people of the wondrous works of God. May we never have disregard for our shaping memory. May we never have disregard for our shaping memory. We must remember the story. Go back in your mind to Luke 19. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be crucified. We call it the triumphal entry. Here's Jesus, the king, enters to reign from his unlikely throne, the cross. He rides on the colt of a donkey that's never been ridden before. And as he rides in, the crowd shout out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And the Pharisees say, Shh, silence your people, Rabbi. They can't talk like that. Shut them up. They're making you out to be the Messiah. And Jesus says, and my followers are silent. The stones themselves will cry out my story. Don't let the stones do your singing for you. We live in a culture of intimidation now. And like ancient Israel, we dwell amongst a people in a land who worship their own idols, God's man-made, made in their own minds, presented by their own pens. And we are threatened, and we are hushed, and we are intimidated as the church, and we are bullied to be silent so that we too, I fear, don't say we forget to tell our story, which of course is his story of crucifixion and resurrection. That we too are in bondage, bondage to sin and death, and by the Messiah we are made free. That God himself put on skin. He came down in the form of Bethlehem baby. He stepped down from his glory and he died and he was beaten and he was bruised. He died thorns and fists and spit and Calvary and cross. He died and then as the prophets had predicted, he arose on the third day. And so we must say every day and every way we have a deliverer, we have a story, and we have gratitude for a God. And as his people, as a church, we will say with boldness and with love and truth and with tenderness, we have been rescued from death itself for our God is the only God with an empty tomb. He did for us and with us what we ourselves could not do for ourselves. And we will say, he is our God and he is the only God and we are his people and he is a creator and a redeemer and a sustainer and he's coming again for his people. We will say. God was perplexed. He had sent Moses, the plagues, the exodus, and they were making idols with their own hands and chasing emptiness. They became empty. You will be like what you worship. It's best to choose to worship God. And may Yahweh never look down. May the Christ never say of this his church. They gathered together, but even in their worship or in their workplace, in the schoolhouse, the hospital, the bank, they did not say, may we always be a speaking people on behalf of the goodness of our God. Let's pray.
God, I know it's harder to say than it's ever been. We're pushed down and told we can't talk that way. We need to be quiet. And this isn't the place and this isn't the time. Every time and every place is a place to talk about Yahweh's goodness to his people. It's our testimony. It's our story. We cannot change the story. It's the story, and we will tell it. Oh, God, I pray if there's someone here in this room today who needs to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that even today she will come. Even today he will come and say, I need his story to be my story. I'm stepping forth to, to accept him, to be baptized, to die with him, and to rise with him. I want to share his story of redemption. Maybe there's others who need to come and be a part of this proclaiming, communicating, uttering people called First Baptist Church. We utter not only here, but throughout the whole world. We go and we travel, and as we go, we say. Maybe there are others who want to be part of a speaking church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.